Barbarians at the Gates And the Lord said unto Joshua, Ye shall compass the city, all the men of war, going about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days, and the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the horns. And it shall be, that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the horn, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Joshua chapter 6 verses 2 through 5 March 13, 2012 I had my own ideas about how Facebook could finally join the outside world of real ads targeting and stave off the coming revenue catastrophe. Here was the reality. The Facebook ad system was backward, clunky, buggy, and slow. If you were to date it by what previous ads technology incarnation it resembled, you'd say it was like Yahoo circa 2007 in terms of actual value of data and targeting ability. If Zuck knew anything about ads, and he largely didn't, he'd likely have been embarrassed by the rudimentary state of Facebook's ad system from the purely technical, if not the monetary level. As I've said before, a billion times anything is still a big number, so Facebook was still making respectable revenue. But if you had asked any advertising technology entrepreneur about the status of Facebook in the middle of 2012, he or she likely would have replied with an indiscreet chuckle. This was a state of affairs not even remotely acknowledged internally, of course. Facebook ads didn't know what it didn't know. The company was like the rich money bag's son, short on skill, but long on an inheritance, and everyone had to deal with him to be part of the action, no matter how cockeyed his ideas. Seen from the jaundiced eye of the outside advertising world, Facebook had for years been completely unconnected to any outside data source, with no real tracking or attribution to figure out which Facebook ads were working and where. Now we were proposing rendering a quarter of the Internet targetable via all the online data in existence. Every product you'd looked at or bought, everything known about your online reading or browsing habits, it was all going to be inside your Facebook experience now. There were two ways to do this. The first would end up being called Custom Audiences, CA, and was an extension of the existing ad system. Like the data onboarding we talked about earlier, it would be a way to join offline data like names, addresses, and emails to Facebook users. That was its original and sole intent, though it soon grew into much more. The second, more interesting approach, Facebook Exchange, or FBX, would form the final chapter in the programmatic takeover of digital media, a real-time exchange connecting the world's advertising data, user by user, and ad impression by ad impression, to the Facebook experience. Footnote. I'd coined the name and acronym FBX at 2 a.m. some night in the hell-for-leather blur that was the month of FBX conception and gestation. I recalled some marketing nostrum or another about how brand names with an X stand out. Plus, it was a trolling reference to AdX, the Google exchange. End footnote. How did it all work? In the CA case, advertisers had to upload lists of email addresses, phone numbers, names, or other personally identifiable information, PII, and manually craft some targeting cluster, people who bought something last month. The Facebook technology, drafting as it was off recycled targeting technology, was creaky and slow and often broke down. In the FBX case, it would be the New York Stock Exchange of eyeballs, human desire traded for money millions of times a day in real time. 
With this real-time pipe from the outside world to all of Facebook, the company would go from targeting someone who had accidentally liked Jay-Z two years ago to targeting someone who had just chosen between three different shoes at Zappos or read an article on the new Mazda Miata or bought something on eBay, just like that. Facebook needed, needed a real-time ad exchange. A move of this magnitude could be approved only by the topmost level of the Facebook ads high command. As such, it was necessary to sell the ads high command on a technology most had never heard of, much less understood. Rank ignorance was an unsteady base for a decision, so the leadership had to have the perception of understanding conveyed to them somehow. Hard to believe now, but at the time, nobody at Facebook knew anything about retargeting, with the exception of the growth team, and they lived in their own world. I would be the product's internal champion and navigate Facebook's internal turmoil to conjure resources and consensus. I'd also make sure all the proper people were in meetings and pitch sessions. But someone from outside had to serve as the voice of the market. Someone who knew the world of programmatic advertising inside and out, and yet had the non-sleazy salesmanship and technical chops it would take to convince Facebook engineering and product managers. Finding a knowledgeable yet trustworthy player in the advertising space was like finding a snowball in hell. But then, someone came to mind. Zach Coleus was one of the more colorful figures in the Valley advertising world. A Midwestern boy from Minnesota, he had appeared in San Francisco out of nowhere in 2005 and had made himself a figure in the VC landscape by playing in the high-stakes poker games put on by wealthy angel investors. After taking their money at the poker table, he'd take even larger sums from them in the form of investments. He formed the company with his sister doing some trendy and pointless idea, but in 2006, he sensed the way the advertising winds were blowing. Along with several other companies who became competitors, he started a demand-side platform, DSP, the sophisticated ads-buying technology that, like a stockbroker, interfaced with exchanges in the service of ads buyers. I barely knew Zach at the time and had interacted with him precisely once, but that once had made an impression. During the ad grok days, I'd played in a bi-weekly low-stakes poker game that rotated among the various early-stage startups in Soma. The variant of poker we played was called Hold'em, and it was the poker flavor of the moment, played in most tournaments. Two cards were dealt per player, and a set of communal table cards completed the usual five-card poker hands. Two tables featuring about a dozen tech geeks were going when a brown-haired guy in a scarlet t-shirt that screamed Trigget appeared. He seated himself between the tables with nary a hello and started playing a hand at each table. He played hyper-aggressively, what poker wonks call loose-aggressive, and transformed what was a fairly social, sluggish game into a street fight. I managed to avoid the runaway aggression truck until I was dealt two aces. Sneaking a look at them, I decided to slow-play them, betting less aggressively than I should, merely to keep players in the game and ponying up money I'd soon win. Feeling the general table weakness, the guy in the red shirt plunked down a pile of chips, betting in aggressively as usual. I called and raised a largish amount, inducing him to follow and snapping the slow play trap. Zach took one look at me and folded. Everyone else did the same. I collected the small bets I had managed to capture thanks to underplaying a monster hand, then half-jokingly asked him why he had backed down so abruptly. Because you had a monster hand, I could tell the moment you looked at your cards, he replied. I flipped over the two aces and showed the table. Indeed, I said, impressed and embarrassed by his ability to read me. 
Of course, I had connected the shirt with the name at this point and knew whom I was dealing with. In that moment, I recalled an offhand comment Adgrok's lead investor, Russell Siegelman, had made. He had invested in Trigget, but had been pushed out of later rounds by its aggressive CEO. Using that bridge, I mentioned to Zach that he and I shared a common investor, glossing over the fact of Zach's little putsch. Footnote. To startup founders, sharing a common investor is like being from two families joined by marriage. It isn't quite blood family, but it is a common bond that can result in investor intros and maybe mutual aid. End footnote. He casually corrected me. Russ was a former investor, but with that we started talking about advertising. Fast forward two years and he was about the only person I knew inside the real-time advertising world. If he could see through me, then he could see through the fish who would be sitting at the Facebook conference table. Footnote. A fish is the chump or the sucker at the table, who's taken advantage of by practiced players. As the saying goes, if you look around the table and can't tell who the sucker is, then you're the sucker. End footnote. I carefully navigated the packed schedules and prickly admins of Facebook ads executives and found one one-hour slot where everyone who mattered in ads was free and invited Zach to come in and pitch to the assembled Facebook notables. Five minutes before the meeting, I personally rounded up the distinguished attendees, KX, Hegeman, the legendary head of ads optimization, Boland, Rabkin, a dozen engineers. Meeting attendance at Facebook was about as flaky as a meth head's promises to quit, so sometimes tugging at the leash was required. Zach pulled off a bravura performance. For one hour, he held the ads management team spellbound at the sweep and scope of programmatic ads buying for both direct marketing and brand advertisers. It was the shiny bauble that Facebook needed in its public company future. We skipped the slick sales pitch and focused on the gee whiz coolness of all that real-time data and decisioning made possible, which is how you sold the engineering heavy management, along with lots of whiteboard schematics mapping out the business case, and the meeting ended in a rare love fest. An entire management stratum that was usually completely uninterested in the ads world outside Facebook was suddenly fired up and excited. I'd make sure to exploit the burst of enthusiasm fully in the coming days, following up with an entire product and business case that reiterated the need for Facebook's entry, finally, into the real ads targeting space. It felt like Y Combinator demo day all over again, but with an audience of Facebook product and engineering leaders, and with an even more successful result. May 4th, 2012 Five weeks. Five weeks was what we had to ship a real-time ads exchange for Facebook. If we shipped by June 15th, it would be the end of the second quarter, Q2, and we'd be ready to book revenue in Q3, the first full quarter after the IPO. If we had advertiser adoption dialed in, then we could stand a profit from the always huge Q4, when every retailer was incinerating mountains of money on advertising to make its numbers in the Christmas shopping season. It was an insane timeline, but there was no choice. Since the Zach pitch, sponsored stories had well and truly died, and the company was under no more illusions about Facebook fairy dust. I was given all of three engineers for the ambitious task. Ben Reisman looked like a guy who did multi-million dollar real estate deals in Los Angeles, not someone who slung sophisticated back-end code for Facebook's ever-expanding and needy ads infrastructure. 
He made the very first code change for FBX, allowing Facebook's data store to accept the targeting pseudonyms, the nicknames for you, the Facebook user, we'd soon start shooting around billions of times a day. He was a programmer, a title he wore with pride. This was a species of educated, well-socialized frat boy who coded PHP or C++, all the while maintaining the dress and hygiene of a college junior at the Alpha Tau Omega House at UVA. Footnote. To be fair to Riesman, despite fitting the fashion bill, he was far from being a frat boy, actually having left college under unusual circumstances and after never formally going to high school. His exceptional programming skills were self-taught, and his talent absolutely innate. Like a Melville character, part of his story was both recorded and concealed in tattoos he had on his arm, a series of bits, literal ones and zeros, representing in binary various events in his life. End footnote. He was, in many ways, the antithesis of the unkempt basement dweller people call to mind when thinking about programmers. Think instead of Bluto, played by John Belushi, in Animal House, but slimmed down and with a computer science education and perhaps even $200 sunglasses. Code, curls, and girls, those were the priorities of the day, and in that order. Footnote. To be clear, curls refers to biceps curls, the signature exercise of the iron-pumping gym rats, which many programmers are. End footnote. It reflected the reality that coding, far from being the loserly readout of the socially isolated loner, was now the avenue for social mobility and elitism of even the football captain. Whenever real money and status were on the line, as they were now, the status-craving males were never far behind, whatever the task. Facebook played a significant role in the coining of the meme. A senior Facebook engineer named Nick Schrock had started a programming Facebook page that achieved cult status even outside Facebook. As a measure of its bro-y cheek, it once parodied Facebook's own terms of service, a fairly serious legal document subject to constant debate and rewriting, by rephrasing it in programmerese and posting it publicly. Sample line, we give lots of fucks about your privacy, so we wrote this. Read it so you know what the fuck we're going to do with the shit you post. The tech ecosystem and its chroniclers like TechCrunch, forever agonizing about the deplorable state of women in tech, started howling about the corrosive effects of such a culture. Some internal wags helpfully suggested starting a page for the female version of a programmer, hogrammers as they were known, or more politely, programmettes. One of the signs of Facebook's maturing and becoming serious was that the CTO forced Schrock to delete the page, lest it be perceived as sexist and unwelcoming. Great was the disappointment, at least between Reisman and me, that Facebook would nix one of its curious cultural artifacts. The next FBX guerrilla fighter was Hari. Shri Hari Hari Manikarnika was the only engineer at Facebook whom I had known and worked with before my arrival there. An engineer at Yahoo before joining the hated Adkami, he had worked briefly with me on some search technology before I bailed for Adgrok. When he, too, had realized Adkami was a sinking ship, my former Adgrok co-founders and I had tried recruiting him. AZ and MRM to Twitter and me to Facebook. During a 16-hour drinking bout with Hari and his wife that started at Zeitgeist and ended with me dressed as a policeman at a Mission District costume party at 4 a.m., I convinced him to join Facebook. Food tastes even better when stolen off someone else's plate, and I took considerable joy in besting my former co-founders at the recruitment game. Lastly, there was Gary. 
Gary Wu and I had worked together since my first days at Facebook on the targeting team. He was slight of build and usually quiet, but intense and opinionated when discussing matters technical. The only across-the-room screaming match I ever witnessed at Facebook was between Gary and a Russian engineer who had somehow pissed him off. Gary took his work very seriously, and any technical or product proposal floated by me or other members of the team had to pass Gary's review. Usually in such situations, often at our daily stand-up, when we went over everyone's tasks and progress to date, Gary's eyes grew narrow and focused, and he fired out a torrent of heavily accented commentary, usually before a speaker had finished. It was a harsh but necessary reality check, particularly given Gary's comprehensive knowledge of the ad system. This was the army I had. It felt like being back in Y Combinator, except with the suffocating presence of Facebook hanging over us. The code name for the FBX project would be OWL. Since this would be the first time Facebook advertisers could actually stealthily target this or that user, as though they were barn owls finding a mouse in the dark, I dedicated it to the order of Strigiforms, that noble hunter. As a side note, I'd also codenamed the original custom audiences, since I was its first product manager. Perhaps revealing a nascent antipathy, I called it Vulture, as it seemed to live off the carrion of offline email lists, that bottom feeder of the marketing space. Brian Rosenthal, the engineering manager for custom audiences, eventually upgraded it to Eagle. Owl and Eagle. Facebook's first two forays into real ads targeting, the money-making big brothers. For the sake of morale, I was a full-service product manager after all. I ordered a full-size owl model, actually a scarecrow for pigeons, from Amazon. Reisman nicknamed it Tracky the Owl, and it sat next to the window at the edge of the FBX area. A solar panel powered a small electric motor that turned its head, ostensibly to scare away birds. Since the tinted glass and narrow courtyard conspired to keep the office shady, the motor had enough juice to move the head only occasionally, causing the figure to suddenly come alive at odd moments and scaring the bejesus out of any unwary neighbor. The real requirements for FBX were far less comical than the absurdist team-building scarecrow swag. FBX wasn't merely a new ads feature. It was an entirely new ad system parallel to the existing Facebook one. The exchange would have separate data stores with billions of lines of data reflecting the various data joins to the outside world we had made. The FBX code itself, unlike anything inside Facebook ads, would have to contact machines all over the world for bids and ads in real time and react to bids just as quickly, all of this tens of billions of times per day, hundreds of thousands of times per second. How ads themselves were created and uploaded would be different, allowing advertisers that much coveted, and before FBX, impossible, ability to dynamically fine-tune ads for every user and every ad experience. Ad statistics, the boring bean-counting task critical to keep the budgets flowing, would have to exist separately and work for advertisers and their accounting departments, not to mention a whole suite of internal tools and dashboards to monitor the health of this beast we had created making sure bids weren't getting dropped or we weren't slamming our partners with too many requests for bids. On the business side, we, by which I mean the royal PM we, would have to find advertising software companies as partners and onboard them with a list of documents, specifications, and integrations tests. We'd have to program them with a sales spiel for their advertisers so they could in turn pitch their clients and convince them that this newfangled exchange was worth spending money on. 
All the while, we'd need to build a product that eased the adoption hurdle for advertisers as much as possible. No small task. Facebook, for reasons I won't belabor here, had a completely different ads environment from the standard-issue programmatic exchange. The ads themselves were different. Facebook restrictions around data leakage were different. And how the exchange worked was different from your regular ad exchange. In the span of a couple of months, we'd have to ramp up an entirely separate revenue channel for Facebook, with effectively zero support from Facebook management, all the while cajoling the FBX partners to induce their advertisers to spend money under the misleading premise that FBX would be a long-term play for the company. The problem boiled down to this. I had promised the ad's leadership $100 million in revenue in 2012 to juice the post-IPO quarters. That was the trade that had bought even these meager resources. It was game time. IPA is greater than IPO. The more one limits oneself, the closer one is to the infinite. These people, as unworldly as they seem, burrow like termites into their own particular material to construct, in miniature, a strange and utterly individual image of the world. Stefan Zweig, Chess Story May 17, 2012 Time to call Jimmy. Jimmy was my exotic beer dealer at Willow's, the local family-owned grocery store in Menlo Park, which had survived the chain store assault of Whole Foods by developing a thriving sideline in craft beer. The market was on Willow Road, which started just outside 24 Carat Palo Alto, then wended its way through equally gold-plated Menlo Park and past the VA hospital that Ken Kesey once worked in and that inspired One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Almost as if on an exotic safari, Willow Road then traversed East Palo Alto, the local slum that once had the highest murder rate in the Bay Area. The local elementary schools are named after Cesar Chavez and Ron McNair, an African-American astronaut before ending at Facebook's entrance gate, complete with like sign ringed by an ever-present scrum of tourists. Like a true dealer, Jimmy took calls at any hour, and when called on a random, to him, Friday at 12.30 a.m., it was no biggie. Payment? Don't worry about it. Just get the keg and pay me when you come in. The situation was this. Facebook was finally going public. This meant Facebook stock would be traded on the NASDAQ for the first time. In order to duplicate all the old-timey capitalist theatrics back when an exchange was a physical space full of traders whose day would start with an opening bell, NASDAQ marked the occasion with its own purely cosmetic bell that was rung with great fanfare in New York's Times Square, and the apotheotic scene was projected onto a billboard screen overlooking that crucible of tourist kitsch. Zuck had other ideas, though. Appearing besuited in New York would be a step down for such a history-warping company. No. The IPO proceedings would take place at Facebook. That's right, Zuck and the FB High Command wanted to stage their assumption into the technological heavens from Facebook's own courtyard. This was like Napoleon and his coronation, which he insisted take place in his Paris backyard rather than in Reims Cathedral, where they'd been held since the 10th century. Furthermore, similar to Napoleon snatching Charlemagne's crown out of Pope Pius's hands and crowning himself and Josephine, no outside blessing was required from NASDAQ or Wall Street. Zuck would stage the production, pushing the bell button himself right next to his beloved aquarium. From that moment on, Facebook would have a public-facing share price, and employees who either were less fired with zealotry than Zuck or simply didn't have three commas in their net worth like he did 
we're apt to get soft and worry about that volatile number. In order to make sure nobody fixated on the IPO stock price, the high command declared a hackathon the night before. The theory was that if everyone stayed up the entire night hacking, then they'd be conked out the next day, sleeping through the first day of trading. As with many neat Facebook theories, reality would prove to be rather more complicated, but this was the plan. As a useless email writing product manager, I had few options to contribute to this IPO pregame beyond urging it along in the Bacchanal direction. I had once, memorably, brewed beer at the office and decided to recruit a crew to make a batch for the IPO festivities. Footnote. This is a true story. When I moved onto the boat, I had to put my home brewing apparatus somewhere, so I stored it on Facebook's campus. Come some hackathon, aided by some of the other craft beer degenerates, I deployed the five-gallon brew setup, all the while draining a respectable stockpile of Belgian ales. When it came time to chill the boiled proto-beer, we connected the large coil of copper tubing to the faucet in the second-floor kitchen of Building 16. We were apprised of the fact it was raining on Zuck's desk, and that of every other member of senior management, which was directly underneath the kitchen, when security rushed in with panicked faces. Evidently, we had burst the plumbing in the kitchen with our high-pressure cooling. Undaunted, our brave beer crew, who were in a state of considerable inebriation, finished the brew and left the large carboy to ferment in the ads area. Toward four o'clock that morning, upon reaching quasi-sobriety and recalling my duties as product manager of this venture, I sent an apologetic email to Zuck, promising a bottle of the brew as recompense. There were no repercussions from our lark, and I still owe Zuck a bottle, as we kegged the beer instead, which was excellent. We killed it inside of an hour. Move fast and break things, including the plumbing. End footnote. My home brewing setup was still intact and under the FBX desks. We had upgraded our ads drinking facilities, and I had bought the team a real tap and kegerator, which I filled with a locally brewed IPA and an arsenal of bottled Belgians. The first rule of brewing, you must be drinking beer while making it. Come the big night, I set up shop right in the middle of the courtyard, in front of the one cafe that stayed open all night. The huge steaming brew kettle and flaming burner certainly got attention. The beer tap alongside helped too. Zuck sauntered by, took one look at the scene, and shook his head before walking on to the cafeteria. Boland and I were in the throes of a short-lived bout of friendliness given our close work on custom audiences, and he hung around and helped out. PMS was also flitting around, although it seemed that dish had definitely cooled. The presence of her boss, Boland, with whom she had an always ambiguous relationship, didn't help matters. I poured beers for the ever-changing scrum of ads peeps who would swing by, or even random Facebookers. There was that carnivalesque feeling in the air when humanity achieved, for one fleeting moment, a state of generous fellowship with its fellow man, a festive celebration of the universe being so kind as to favor us, a communion among fellow bipedal primates. Then the beer gave out. The brew still had some time to go. We wouldn't even try to cool it using Facebook's crappy plumbing again, and a beer shortage was a cardinal sin. That's when I called Jimmy. Source secured, I asked Boland if he could maybe drive, as I was starting to see double from the liquid tour through Belgium we'd just taken. I climbed into his beater Volvo station wagon, with its torn tan leather interior, abused by too many kids and trips to weekend soccer games. The car looked as though lots of people and their hurried meals had ridden in it. To break up the awkward intimacy of sitting next to each other in a confined space, I asked somewhat absently where he lived. Atherton, came the reply. 
the exclusive neighborhood where Cheryl, among other truly elite tech tycoons, lived. We rent, he was quick to add, perhaps reacting to my impressed look. When confronted with an unwelcome social situation, which is most of them, I default to a Terry Gross pose of interviewing journalist. So how'd you end up at Facebook from Microsoft? Cheryl recruited and convinced me. Ah, that might explain why his lips were hermetically sealed to her ass. Uh, how'd that go? Well, she basically convinced me by saying, Look, I either hire you now and you come work for Facebook, or a year from now I'll hire you to work for the guy whose job I'm offering you right now. And that's what convinced me. Oh, Cheryl Sandberg and her wiles. So that's how you seduced the Bolins of the world. You offered them a rung up on the ladder they thought they'd miss out on otherwise. By the time I had gotten Bolin's informal CV, we'd arrived at Willow's. In a second, I understood the charm of owning your own bar or restaurant, as the idle wealthy often did. You simply walked in and took what you wanted, which is more or less what Boland and I did, swaggering into the Willow's at 1 a.m., along with the last-minute tampon and diaper buyers, mentioning Jimmy's name. We scooped up a keg of their best IPA like we owned the place, threw it in the back of his Volvo, and off we barreled back to the compound. Fast forward another two hours. The second keg was now officially dead as well. The initial rush of the turbo alcohol and greed drunk had worn off. The pretense of this actually being a hackathon with productive work going on was wearing thin. One of the strange hypocrisies around the hacker way was that the company was so big, most employees didn't have the ability to hack on anything at all, engineers being vastly outnumbered by every flavor of corporate camp follower. Typically, these non-hackers would just absent themselves from the geeky nocturnal ritual, but you couldn't miss out on the pre-IPO party, so there was every salesperson, admin, operations specialist, and IT help desk attendant well into the wee hours, milling around without much to do. Certainly, the company had neglected to schedule anything remotely festive or musical. Facebook's Spartan virtues contraindicated celebration, even at the moment of their corporate apotheosis. Many of these people would be worth real liquid money come the next day. Footnote. Technically, that isn't quite true. There is a lockout period after an IPO, typically 180 days, though it can be shorter, when insiders like employees cannot legally sell their shares. This means employees must impatiently sit and watch their company's share price fluctuate, and their net worth along with it, all the while completely unable to transact anything. End footnote. In any normal company, people would be doing lines of cocaine off desks and getting it on in conference rooms. Not so at Facebook. Corporate discipline was maintained. Fast forward another two hours. 5 a.m. now, the wee hours. I considered going to the boat and sleeping, but feared missing the big moment. Doing laps around campus to keep myself awake, I ran into Boland again, who this time had a bottle of 12-year-old single malt. He and PMS were hanging out at one of the tables in the open space between ads and growth, which still featured the half-finished Superman mural that had appeared on the night of the spray paint. They invited me to join, and while never a whiskey guy, it would have been rude to refuse. So did this improbable trio kill the last hour before the big event. A passing former ads engineer posted a photo of me. I looked delirious and unkempt, with rings under my eyes and a paper cup in my hand. I was wearing the Facebook uniform of a logoed zipped fleece and had trotted out an old Adgrock t-shirt underneath for the occasion. 
I was only semi-conscious at this point. We had started pulling insane hours trying to ship FBX on time, and my deficit on the sleep front was truly Greek in scale. But the crepuscular redness of a new California day was breaking. The moment drew near. We all wandered outside where a crowd was gathering. Overnight, facilities had erected what looked like a rock concert stage with a football stadium-sized screen framed by scaffolding and lights. At the base of it stood a tower-like podium with a glass lectern. Embedded in that glass was the button that Zuck would push to trigger the public company Genesis. Behind and above the podium was an image of those three icons whose nagging notifications had created this multi-billion dollar empire. Two human figures, representing friend requests, dialogue bubbles for messages, and a globe for likes and comments. This trinity, internally known as the Jewels, appeared in every manifestation of Facebook, whether mobile or desktop, and the red notifications that popped up on them were now the world's operant conditioning candy. The effect on stage was to make the scene itself seem like a Facebook page. As dawn grew brighter, the courtyard filled, and soon it was packed elbow to elbow. The positive mood had revived, and the crowd was noisy with gossiping expectation and the occasional whoop. A commotion could be noticed around the podium, and soon Facebook's leadership started appearing one by one. Zuck, Cheryl, David Fisher, Elliot Schrage, Pedram Chiani, Chris Cox. Both Chiani and Cox had addressed my onboarding. Javier Olivan, head of growth, Greg Baudros, then running ads, and so on. It was 6.25 a.m., and history was about to be made. The scene was projected, political rally style, onto the large screen, allowing everyone in the courtyard to follow along. One of the NASDAQ emissaries, someone had stuck Facebook shirts on them, introduced Zuck as the company's visionary, as if he needed an intro. Out of nowhere, a booming female voice announced that the scene was also playing in Times Square, New York. Evidently, the whole scene would be broadcast above Chinese tourists taking photos with a naked cowboy. Silence regained. Zuck took the mic. So, in a few minutes, I'm going to ring this bell, and we're all going to get back to work. Stay focused on our mission. Zuck gave a few celebratory remarks that you almost couldn't hear over the cheering. The countdown to opening, without a visible clock, increased the suspense, as you didn't quite know when it would come. Finally, the magic time somehow signaled. Everyone at the podium started counting down in unison. Five, four, three, two, one. Zuck smacked his hand down on the glass facing him, almost knocking over the entire assembly. A recording played the quaint sound of an old-school fire alarm. Everyone started cheering like it was New Year's. The assembled grandees started a group hug. Everyone in the crowd took the same photo at once. History being made. Facebook IPO. We were living and watching it. Our friends can only envy. Our grandkids can only imagine when we tell them the story. Feel that temporary pause in baseline human existential angst by being part of something bigger than yourself. Usually ignoble like a lynch mob, sometimes heroic like D-Day, rarely profitable like an IPO. People had looks of delirious joy on their faces as they found their friends or teammates to take a group photo with and record the moment. Employees bestowed on the experience the highest praise possible. They posted it as an MLE, major life event, on their timelines, a rank usually enjoyed by only births and marriage. It was a big block of white space with a single headline and photo, like newspapers when the Apollo astronauts walked on the moon. 
Facebook goes public was the headline, with details like once-in-a-lifetime and once-in-a-generation company. Churchill once noted in a parliamentary speech, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Similarly, capitalism is the worst form of managing the means of production, except for yet worse ways. We should treat it as such, rather than turning it into the blue state secular religion, alongside yoga and John Oliver. What's my big beef with capitalism? That it desacralizes everything, robs the world of wonder, and leaves it as nothing more than a vulgar market. The fastest way to cheapen anything, be it a woman, a favor, or a work of art, is to put a price tag on it. And that's what capitalism is, a busy greengrocer going through his store with a price sticker machine. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk. $4.10 for eggs, $5 for coffee at Sight Glass, $5,000 per month for a rundown one-bedroom in the Mission. Think I'm exaggerating? Stop and think for a moment what this whole IPO ritual was about. For the first time, Facebook shares would have a public price. For all the pageantry and cheering, this was Mr. Market coming along with his price sticker machine and, ka-chunk, putting one on Facebook for $38 per share. And everyone was ecstatic about it. It was one of the highlights of the technology industry and one of the once-in-a-lifetime moments of our age. In pre-postmodern times, only a divine ritual of ancient origin, victory in war, or the direct experience of meaningful culture via shared songs, dances, or art would cause anybody such revelry. Now we're driven to ecstasies of delirium because we have a price tag, and our life's labors are validated by the fact it does. That's the smoldering ambition of every entrepreneur, to one day create an organization that society deems worthy of a price tag. These are the only real values we have left in the twilight of history, the tired dead end of liberal democratic capitalism, at least here in the California fringes of Western civilization. Clap at the clever people getting rich and hope you're among them. Is it a wonder that the inhabitants of such a world clamor for contrived rituals of artificial significance like Burning Man, given the utter bankruptcy of meaning in their corporatized culture? Should we be surprised that they cling to identities, clusters of consumption patterns that seem lifted from the ads targeting system at Facebook? Hipster millennials, urban mommies, affluent suburbanites. Ortega y Gasset wrote, Men play at tragedy because they do not believe in the reality of the tragedy, which is actually being staged in the civilized world. Tragedy plays like the IPO were bound to pale for those who felt the call of real tragedy, the tragedy that poets once captured in verse and that fathers once passed on to sons. Would the inevitable descendants of that cheering courtyard crowd one day gather with their forebears, perhaps in front of a fireplace, and ask, Hey, Grandpa, what was it like to be at the Facebook IPO? The way previous generations asked about Normandy or the settling of the Western frontier? I doubt it. Even as a participant in this false mass, the temporary thrill giving way quickly to fatigue and a budding hangover, I wondered what would happen to the culture when it couldn't even produce spectacles like this anymore. When I returned to work that afternoon after a nap on the boat, I was expecting to find an empty campus. On the ads floor, however, I found everyone diligently at his desk, as if nothing had happened that morning. The Zuckian injunction to get back to work had been followed. Just to stick my finger symbolically in Zuck's eye, I fired up Google Finance and checked the stock price. 
Nasdaq had evidently screwed up the market open, despite the pyrotechnics in the courtyard, and the stock hadn't started trading until 11 a.m. Eastern Time. It had started around $42 officially, and it closed around $38, a flat day which is counterintuitively great news. Even though I wouldn't be able to sell stock for a good several months thanks to the lockout, I did now have a real ticking market price for the pieces of paper that constituted my real compensation. So what was I making? Facebook's original offer was 75,000 shares, vesting over four years, in addition to a $175,000 salary. I had managed to wangle the equivalent of 5,000 shares up front in cash to pay for credit cards, a new car, with the license plate AdGrok, of course, and the sailboat I was then living on, about $200,000 in cash altogether. That left 70,000 shares. Assuming nominal performance from both me and the company, our bonuses were a product of individual performance reviews and a company-wide multiplier more or less arbitrarily chosen by Zuck. I'd get a cash bonus in the 7 to 15% range. Wall Street, this wasn't. There would be equity top-ups as well. Assuming okay reviews, it would likely be in the low single-digit thousand-share range. If I had some big promotion or started climbing the corporate ladder for real, it would be considerably more than that. Here's what it came to, assuming shares valued at the IPO price. $38 per share times 70,000 shares divided by 4 years plus 3,000 shares annual bonus plus $175,000 base salary plus 17,500 rough annual bonus equals $971,500 per year. Not quite a million. Seemed like much? It wasn't. Remember, this was taxed as common income, even the shares I'd waited a year for, given the IRS's incomprehension of tech compensation. So it was really about $550,000 take-home per year, or about 12 times the median U.S. family income, for a guy whose biggest line-item expenditures were fancy Belgian beer and marine hardware. This was about San Francisco middle class, or barely, really. Coupled with another tech salary from a spouse, it would be the high six-figure take-home that would permit a normal, though not posh, life in what was becoming the country's priciest city. It meant that I and my hypothetical spouse could afford a house, though we'd need a mortgage, as average apartment prices in Noe Valley were $1.5 million or so. Want a proper house? You're talking $3 million and up. It meant the kids could attend private school and avoid the public school savages. It meant occasional weekends in Tahoe, Christmas somewhere exotic, and Hawaii a couple of times a year, maybe. It meant a new BMW X5 for the missus every three years, and maybe splurging on a Tesla S for me. But that's about it. And if I lost the Facebook teat, kiss it all goodbye. Already public companies weren't comping at these rates, and earlier stage companies were paying piles of risky paper. There are only two inflection points in personal wealth two points where your life really changes. One is the aforementioned fuck you money, the other is the even loftier fuck the world money. Before that first rung of fuck you money, when you're counting your nickels and dimes and shares and bonuses and what all to get to a few hundred K of dosh, all that changes is what I'll call your indifference threshold to expense. If before you didn't think about dropping $6 for another pint of beer with your friends, and believe me, I've lived through times when I had to think about even that, now you don't think about the pricey $60 salmon lunch at Anchor and Hope. 
If previously you thought before indulging yourself with some questionably useful $50 gadget, now you'll drop $500 on a new phone or ultra-compact projector without thinking about it. As if you lived in some dodgy country undergoing a period of hyperinflation, what used to be worth $10 in mental decision cost now takes $100 to trigger. It's like your mental decimal point of concern has moved over a zero, or perhaps more than one. You're not even really thinking about costs until you've broken $1,000. This sliding around of an indifference threshold is peanuts in the scheme of things. Real transformation happens at the first real rung on the wealth ladder. Fuck you money is like reaching the break-even point in the startup of you, and it means you are no longer beholden to outside forces. Imagine that inflection point for a moment. I didn't quite realize all this, sitting there on the first day the company was public, looking at a stock price, but I would soon enough. I'd see not just my fortunes change, even if not in a fully fuck you sort of way, very quickly. Those of everyone around would change as well. From the slightly ridiculous nights out, I recall a double-steak dinner and four-figure restaurant bills in there somewhere, to the rather rapid accumulation of Porsches, Corvettes, and even the odd Ferrari in the parking lot. Things did assume a certain debauched air at Facebook, despite all the corporate clamor for austere discipline. That was all in the future. Right then, it just seemed I was finally going to live at something above a subsistence level and have more than peanuts in the bank. I quickly flipped to the countdown timer on my Mac, the one I had set to count down to my first year of vesting when I joined. I'd make a quarter of my nut on July 15th in about two months. It couldn't arrive fast enough. Oh, and the beer we brewed the night before? I'd title it the IPO IPA. Like the IPO itself, it was a bit of a disappointment, nowhere near as good as Zuck's wet desk IPA. Two weeks later, we finished the keg all the same, but it felt more like duty than anything else. Somehow, brewing in a spirit of good fellowship and the hilarity of drenching the CEO's desk had produced a better product than the strained group celebration of the IPO. Initial public offering, a reevaluation. Prices, like everything else, move along the line of least resistance. They will do whatever comes easiest. Edwin Lefevre, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. May 18, 2012. The news coverage surrounding the IPO, even from the supposedly savvy tech and financial press, was a reminder of that harsh lesson of life. There are those who write headlines about money for a living, and then there are those who make money. Facebook IPO blunder announced fortune. Mark Zuckerberg's big Facebook mistake thundered Forbes. Facebook disappoints on its opening day, intoned VentureBeat, a Valley Insider rag that should have known better. Despite such headlines, Facebook's IPO was not a fiasco. It was without question the most successful tech IPO in financial history. If you don't understand why, then you don't understand how IPOs work, and you should read on. What's an IPO exactly? A company decides it wants to float part of its equity on the public markets, allowing employees and founders to sell private shares to pay them off for years of service, as well as sell shares out of the corporate treasury to have some money in the bank. Large investment banks, such as my former employer, Goldman Sachs, form what's called a syndicate. Mafia might be a better term wherein they offer to effectively buy those shares from Facebook 
and then sell them into the capital markets, usually by pushing it via their sales force onto wealthy clients or institutional investors. That syndicate either guarantees a price, firm commitment, or promises to get the best price it can, best effort. In the former case, the bank is taking real execution risk and stands to lose money if it doesn't engineer a pop in the stock on opening day. To mitigate the risk, the bank convinces the offering company to expect a lower price while simultaneously jacking up what real price the market will bear with a zealous sales pitch to the market's deepest pockets. Thus, it is absolutely jejune to think that a stock's rise on opening day is due to clamoring and unexpected interest. Similar to Captain Renault in Casablanca, Wall Street bankers are shocked, shocked, that there should be such a large and positive price dislocation in the market they just rigged. As proof of the complete charlatanism at work in most IPOs, let's ask ourselves a question. Are there other situations in the financial world in which the banks are responsible for setting, ab initio, so to speak, a fair market price and in which that routinely works out? Why, yes, in fact. It happens every morning when thousands of stocks start trading on the public exchanges. How does the first price of the day in IBM get set? Back in the days of floor traders, the specialists responsible for trading that stock weighed the amount of buying versus selling interest and calculated a reasonable mid-market price. They then offered to buy it slightly less and sell it slightly more than that price when the market opened, supplying the liquidity they're paid to provide via the narrow bid-ask spread they pocket on every trade. Modern electronic exchanges have replaced the manual process with an algorithmic one, but it's essentially the same. On opening, trading initiates smoothly from a stew of overnight speculation and imaginary price movements into real trades and shares trading hands. How often does one see 20 to 30% price changes on opening in U.S. exchanges? Never, basically, other than after catastrophic events like market meltdowns or 9-11. Given Wall Street Bank's consummate skill in usually running orderly markets when their money and reputations are on the line, isn't it a wonder that they should suddenly find it impossible to engineer an IPO in which the price doesn't pop 20% on open? Even assuming there were some ever-present estimation error, isn't it striking, too, how they always manage to underestimate the price on the first day, making themselves a fortune, rather than overestimating and causing themselves a loss? Facebook shredded the usual IPO script. The stock opened at $42 and closed at $38.37, which put the financial press in a howling tizzy of complaint, and which nicely screwed the bankers. The negotiations were way, way, way above my pay grade, so I have no idea how David Ebersman, Facebook's then-CFO, managed to coerce or cajole the bankers into offering a high and fair price, essentially screwing themselves in the process. But he and whoever else on the Facebook side deserved the Nobel Prize in economics for doing so. They even squeezed the bankers on fees. Oh yes, in addition to fleecing you with overt price manipulation, bankers are paid a flat fee for their exertions. Facebook syndicate accepted a modest fee of just over 1%, rather than a more typical fee that sometimes runs as high as 7%. While the press jeered about the disastrous IPO, the feeling inside the company was one of utter triumph. Facebook had gone public without getting skinned alive, and it now had a mountain of money to recruit the best engineers, acquire budding competitors, and outspend rivals on product development, all with minimal dilution of the shareholders. 
that is, of us, the employees. Here is your lesson from the Facebook IPO. Whenever you see the headline, StockX pops on first day of trading and declared a success, instead think, founders and employees just got completely screwed and the bankers and their wealthy clients made fortunes. Because that's what happened and didn't happen in the case of Facebook. Flash Boys I have never yet been afraid of men who set up marketplaces in the middle of their city where they lie and cheat one another. Herodotus, Histories June 15, 2012 120 milliseconds is about one-third of the time it takes a human to blink an eye. That's what we had to play with. That's how much time an FBX partner had to return a bid and an ad when requested to by the exchange an auction process that would take place 50 billion times a day, or about half a million times per second. Any longer than that, and it threatened to delay the Facebook page load. If you should ever be standing in a post-launch Zuck demo, and the FBX ads load a tick slower than the rest of the page, or worse, make the entire page load slowly, then you are on the fast train to a job at Dropbox. And don't let the Facebook door hit your ass on the way out. Those 120 milliseconds included the network latency, meaning the time elapsed when the bits flowed out of the Facebook pipe to the outside Internet and to wherever the FBX partner's machine was located and back again. This presented a serious and seemingly insurmountable technical challenge because Facebook was then being served for the entire world out of data centers in North Carolina, California, and Oregon. European marketers and their mountains of data had to talk to machines in the United States, often on both coasts. In order to comprehend the feasibility, I calculated the spherical distance between North Carolina and Amsterdam, where much of European tech is hosted on server farms, to see if it was even theoretically possible to respond to ad auction requests. Light travels fast, 299,792,458 meters per second, but not fast enough. It was 23 milliseconds one way, and that was assuming lossless fiber-optic cable running directly on a great circle route from Facebook's machines to the advertiser, a ridiculous simplification of the reality. Pinging the distance from an East Coast machine revealed a more realistic 60-millisecond one-way travel time. There was no way to beat the relativistic bound, and for as long as I was at the company, we lost money in Europe as many of those requests simply timed out and FBX did not participate in the auction. If you've read Michael Lewis's Flash Boys, which details the ultra-fast, high-frequency trading that takes place on the stock exchange, you'll recall his prefatory riff on a hedge fund that ran a fiber-optic cable from New York to Chicago. The goal was to shave a few milliseconds off the regular internet route between the two financial hubs and gain a split-second advantage over other high-frequency shops. The cost was reputedly $300 million, which indicated the stakes involved. You'll see that my analogy to Wall Street for programmatic media wasn't merely historical. It was an exact comparison reflecting both business and technical realities. FBX was the flash boys of media, trading quanta of human attention at the speed of light. Every time you load a new page in Facebook, not to mention most of the Internet, optical signals crisscross the globe to hundreds of waiting machines, all announcing, like some phalanx of royal trumpeters, your impending arrival. So what happens to those globe-spanning bid requests, assuming they don't drown in their transatlantic undersea cable? The people listening for your presence in billions of such requests per day are known as demand-side platforms, DSPs. 
and they're the stockbrokers of this real-time media world, working in the employ of the advertiser or agency who wants to sell you something. Footnote. In case you're wondering, yes, there is such a thing as supply-side platform, SSP. It's the sell-side technology that DSPs and other buyers plug into, and it helps publishers monetize their sites and apps. Often that technology is a real-time exchange. In many ways, FBX is an SSP, except that unlike most SSPs, which try to sign as many publishers as possible, this one has only one big client, Facebook itself. End footnote. The DSP quickly unpacks the bid request and queries its data for anything it knows about you. Sites you've browsed, shopping carts you've abandoned, that airfare quote you got and never acted upon. They're all there and returned within milliseconds via state-of-the-art databases hyper-optimized for the purpose. Much of that data isn't even directly observed by the advertisers in question. Companies have done deals for the right to rent a little piece of the web page on sites of commercial interest, just enough to touch your browser and see who you are. These data brokers put you in some targeting segment, for example, travel intenders, that is, people about to spend money on hotels, and then resell you as third-party data. Since everyone has a pseudonym for you via your web browser, and that browser is known to Facebook, Google, and everyone else, that data can be used to target you. This is all anonymous, in the sense of Facebook data never leaking out, but it's everything you do online. All of it is more spice in the targeting sausage going through the advertising meat grinder and is trafficked millions of times per second, whether you know or like it or not. The real-time millisecond bids from Facebook Exchange then fed into the regular ads auction that Facebook was holding on behalf of non-FBX advertisers. At which point Facebook, with all of its vaunted data, became merely one more DSP in the auction, just one more broker doing its business. The difference was, the rest of the Facebook ad system had Facebook's set of data, while the FBX advertisers, however many there were in that auction, had their own data from the non-Facebook world. Since both the Facebook ad system and the outside world now received a request for an ad via FBX, we had put outside advertisers on an equal footing with Facebook itself and made the best man, or bid, win. I saw it as a feature. Facebook saw it as a bug. This was FBX's unforgivable sin. It allowed outsiders the same ability to optimize and target ads alongside the Facebook ads machinery, choosing whom to target, on which page, and at whatever frequency, just as Facebook did. That equality of outside parties in Facebook was something ads management could not abide. For all the bluster about Facebook's wonderful data, management was unwilling to go head-to-head -head with outside data because the managers suspected they'd lose, which they mostly did. The bids of FBX advertisers were typically way higher than bids brought in by the rest of the ad system, meaning FBX advertisers tended to win the auction for users' attention more often. Of course their bids were higher. FBX bidders knew you had just specked out a Jack Spade handbag or had bought diapers last week. Facebook, by contrast, knew you had liked Jim Carrey's fan page a year ago. Whose bid for an ad was going to come in at $30 CPM? Footnote. That didn't mean FBX's marginal contribution to FB revenue was as dramatic as the difference in bid. Like most online ad auctions, Facebook ran a second-price auction. The economic specifics are Ph.D. level, but essentially it meant you paid the amount of the next highest bid rather than what you bid. If one did the math, it meant a much better price discovery mechanism overall. To truly increase total revenue, you needed a density of bids at the clearing price the ad impression had sold for, 
pushing the aggregate prices paid upward. No density and all those high bids did nothing for the bottom line. So our goal was to increase the overlap between outside FBX bidding interest and the ads volume FB brought to market. That's what obsessed us on the FBX team. End footnote. Note, there was nothing magical about FBX. It was merely sophisticated plumbing. The point was that joining Facebook ads via a real-time exchange to a world of data it didn't previously have access to was the fastest and most sophisticated way to get that data into Facebook. Custom audiences could also bring the exact same data into Facebook, but nobody who dealt in sophisticated targeting for a living wanted to use Facebook's clunky infrastructure to facilitate it. To cite loose technical analogies, CA versus FBX was like faxes versus email. Surely Silicon Valley's most aggressive company would see the historical inevitability of programmatic exchanges and their technical superiority. Move fast and break things, they told us. Fortune favors the bold, the poster said. But here is where I shamefully displayed my naivete. For someone who had spotted the resemblance between Goldman Sachs and Facebook within an hour of meeting the latter, I had forgotten my lessons learned at the former. When it came to monetization, Facebook had no interest in real innovation. It liked its faxes. Like any large company, Facebook would always aim to create monopoly pricing power and maintain information asymmetry rather than drive true innovation. If Facebook played with the outside world, it always played with loaded dice. Recall the depths of the credit crash at Goldman back in 2008. Goldman could have pushed for the obvious technical step of trading credit derivatives on exchanges, which would have resulted in greater volume and greater transparency and taken the regulatory heat off. But would Goldman seed its information asymmetry in the form of the trading flows that it, and only it, saw? Would it seed the ability to more or less arbitrarily set prices for credit risk alongside a tightly knit network of brokers, effectively manipulating the market to its own benefit rather than offering an open one? Of course not. And neither would Facebook when it came down to it. I wasn't thinking about that on June 15th, though. Because that was the day the first successful bid on FBX finally was made with one of FBX's better partner companies, Telepart. Footnote. One of the more impressive companies in the original FBX partner list, Telepart would curiously enough sell to Twitter in 2015. End footnote. We had pulled it off. We'd built an ads exchange and a parallel ad system to Facebook in about five weeks of engineering work and maybe two months total of product ideation. The mood was high at the FBX table. Tracky the Owl would finally be able to eat his long-sought mouse. Initial volume was of course light, and what would preoccupy us all for the next six months was increasing the volume of bids and money as quickly as possible and making FBX the centerpiece of an entire vision of how Facebook should monetize. Eventually, though, the race became simply to make FBX too big for even Facebook's murderous management to kill. FBX was fighting for its life, almost from the moment it was born.